Hello, hello, this is Pete from Box Office 30. I wanted to tell you all about something exciting I'm working on and invite you to be a part of it. Recently, I started a little online business selling comic books and other collectibles on the Whatnot platform. It's called Pete's Comics and Collectibles. Apt name, right? What is Whatnot, you may be asking yourself? Well, it's kind of a weird blend between Twitch and eBay. You can find all sorts of great collectibles, both modern and vintage. There's tons of different categories you can follow, and what you do is join live shows that the sellers are putting on, and you can see what they're selling, and chat with them in real time, chat with others in real time, and place bids on items that you might be interested in. Really cool, really fun, and if you win, the items are shipped directly to you. Couldn't be easier. And if you join using my link, you'll actually receive $10 to use in the app. So sign up now at whatnot.com slash invite slash Pete's Comics to get your $10. And that's coincidentally the name of my channel, Pete's Comics. So whether you're a new user or somebody who's been using Whatnot for a while, I'd love for you to come check out my stream. I sell lots of fun stuff, lots of old comics, lots of new comics, lots of other stuff coming up. Maybe some baseball cards, Magic the Gathering, who knows? Again, that's Pete's Comics on the Whatnot app. Hope to see you soon. Thanks. is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And, and this, this is Box Office 30. 30. Welcome to Box Office 30 for January 1993. I'm Pete, and as usual, I'm joined by my good buddy and co-host, Michael. How are you doing, sir? I'm well, thank you. How are you, sir? <laughs> I, I can't complain. Um, this is our first uh, episode of the new year, and our first episode of like yet another new format. I feel like every uh, year or turn so. of the year now, we sort of do like a little like chrysalis thing and come out a new beautiful butterfly for the next year. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, for those who might have missed it, um, we did a triple threat um, review at the end of last year, and we did three episodes, not four, uh, (laughs) as we were hoping to do. And then in between that, we sort of decided that we are not going to do two episodes a month anymore. Um, Michael and I are just like, 
got a lot of stuff going on and we know you all have a lot of stuff going on. So we thought we'd condense the best or what we consider to be the best of those two shows down into one show. And we're actually going to kind of mirror, funny enough, our very first ever episode all the way back in the day, which was Total Recall, where we sort of did the box office list and information in that as well as the review in that. So that's kind and of- It won't be nine like. hours long, folks, I yeah. promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's either going to be, it, instead of like two like medium to longish episodes, it'll probably end up being like one medium high to, to longish <laughs> episode, <laughs> if I'm guessing. But we'll, we'll see how quick we get through these things. Um, you, you know what it is? Um, I just honestly think that- we can cover more and be a little bit more concise doing it this way versus, you know, trying to fumble through stuff and whatever. And Pete and I both agreed going point by point for the movie and making like 85 different points felt a little bit unnecessary. And we both sort of enjoyed the idea of, you know, just talking about the movies in a a more condensed. Well, it's either come from a, I'd love to say it's like a uh, a natural evolution of the show, but in reality, I think it's really just laziness that (laughs) some of the later on episodes we've had as of of late, you and I haven't been want to either we've been writing the notes and then not really wanting to sit and go through them all or like just been skipping writing notes entirely. And so I think, you know, it just makes more sense at this point to try and just, you know, talk about the film kind of do like the, you know, Cisco Lieber what works, and discuss you know. what we think worked or didn't work or yeah. whatever about it. Um, I will say so, I do have a lot of thoughts about this movie um, in the 30-year lens um, in, in a lot of ways, which is... It certainly has that. I mean, I will say this is another one like A Few Good Men, and I don't want to dive too much into this before we get through the rest of the intro to the show, but I will say just to mirror what your your kind of thought line is there that like a few good men, I felt like I remembered a few kind of quintessential scenes and then couldn't really think of what else there was. And the reality is it's quite a long movie and it's, it, it is an very long movie. Yeah. yeah. It's very long, but I did enjoy it, which I find. Yeah. You know. So uh, we'll get back to it. Um, in the meantime, let's uh, dive right in and look at our new and new to you. All right, Michael, why don't you kick us off? I feel so, like I might have a scarier list than you do this time. <laughs> I've got one. I've got okay. one. Yeah, mine is definitely scarier than yours. <laughs> so have you seen the menu? I have not. Um, I will say, and and you know this, that a lot of that type of movie tends to flit by my radar. Um they use the word flit, guys. Do yes. You, do you hear this? <laughs> yes, flit by. I'm keeping that little butterfly thing going. Um, I, 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 What I ended up doing, I don't know if you know Red Letter Media on YouTube. Yes. Um, they became really big and famous for doing these super long but incredible and hilarious reviews of the Star Wars movies. And um, I ended up watching like their like mid-year catch-up, which had that among several other movies. And that was probably good enough for me, but tell me about it. <laughs> so uh, 
it is a good movie. It's enjoyable, but it is, I would say, mostly predictable on how it kind of played out. Um, I don't know if this is a spoiler for anybody. It seemed like they were making it out in the trailer, like the whole thing was going to be leading to like cannibalism. But I so, hear that that's not really the case. So that's what I thought. I thought they were going to be like that. The chef is, you know, killing people and they're eating the former guests or something like that or something. It's not like that at all. It's it's more. It's more like he's like trolling. It's like meta. It's like he's trolling yes, the people. It's, it's very and, meta. You know, because like they're like, oh, look at this. This is amazing. Like they showed like the example of the breadboard that he brings out. Yeah, and it's just he's got the all dips. the dipping sauces, but no bread. And they're like, this yeah. is genius. And it's like it, he's kind of like screwing with them. Is the is the whole concept of it? <laughs> so essentially, and and this is going to be a bit of a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, he invited these particular guests and he's been in communication with them for like five or six months, let's say. And each one of them has offended him, screwed him over or hurt him in some way, shape or form. The only one that's kind of like a anomaly is Anya Taylor Joy's character, which the moment I saw her on the screen, like, She's going to be the only one to live at the end of the movie. And spoiler, she is the only one that lives in the morning, in the movie. But basically, each each guest or whatever has insulted this famous chef. And even he is sort of like grown tired of being this like high-end fancy chef. The irony of the movie is all the people in the film are playing people that are, you know, into this high uh, highfalutin dining scene, yeah. um, like like if you watch Chef's Table on Netflix, yeah. But yet they're all actors and movie stars in real life, and this is how they would probably be in real life. Going to these, <laughs> it, it's it's almost like it's almost insulting the intelligence of the of the viewer because I'm like, but these I have to say, I do <laughs> I do think it's a more clever direction to take than you know, cannibal cannibalism chef, yeah. you know what I mean? It, and, it is. I know, I know a little bit about like the hamburger thing at the end that sort of brings it back together. And for me, that's kind of like a nice thing that it's like, Oh, something simple. Something that brings back just the joy of why you started doing this. So I, I think it was a clever thing. So I don't know, maybe I will see it. <laughs> I, I will say that the cast is phenomenal. The, the, you know, the, the, the way it's acted is very believable. And the thing that I found the most funny about it is, so um, John Leguizamo is in it and he's playing like a washed up movie star action hero kind of a guy. Right. And he's kind of a jerk and he's kind of a, you know, pompous, you know, asshole. I gotta and say, John Leguizamo seems to be having a real comeback. over. He's like having a little years. Renaissance, you know, yeah, between yeah. Uh, <laughs> Encanto and all the other stuff. Yeah. But, um, but like, he says that he based his character off of Steven Seagal because he felt that Steven Seagal, when he worked with him in the movie Broken Arrow, was the most disrespectful, <laughs> mean person he's ever worked with in Hollywood. <laughs> and he hated him. He hated him. I just was like, that is hilarious. I actually hopefully we will get this podcast to last to 1996 to do Broken Arrow. Because I kid you not, that was my favorite movie I, that year. <laughs> I loved Broken Arrow. It's one of my favorite uh, Travolta movies by far. That and and uh, Face Off, which is another fantastic movie. So um, I'm going to yeah. run through my list because I don't want to spend too much time on each of these because we could be here for an entire show length for me just discussing this because I've 
done my normal winter thing and seen a bunch of stuff that I was waiting to see. So I'll kick things off with Uncharted. Um, so this is a movie based off of the PlayStation video game franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, my problem is I owned Uncharted 3, played like an hour of it, and then didn't get any farther in that. Same, same, funny enough. So I don't know how closely it matches like the plots of movies necessarily, but um, it certainly matched the sort of, I think that's Naughty Dog that did Uncharted, sort of the spectacle that they put mm-hmm. into their games, these sort of big action set pieces that seemed like it would be something out of the game. So um, it was I fine. Will, I will say that I watched about the first hour of it and never finished it. So yeah, I mean, so maybe to that to that point, it was fine. It was like it was nothing to write home about. I thought that Red Notice was better for something that felt like in that similar vein of movie. Um, so mm-hmm. I would suggest seeing Red Notice over that. Um, I saw Strange World. Um, that's the Disney film that came out to it bombed. Huge bomb in the box office um, was almost immediately thrown onto uh, Disney Plus, and honestly, not that bad. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, you know, I I reckon you know, like it was funny. Like Zoe kind of wanted to see it because um, we kept seeing trailers in the theater for it, and um, it's basically like a journey to the center of the Earth type of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about three generations of father and son and sort of like the expectations of um, what a father feels like he wants for his son and what his son should be. Bill Hader's the voice of the main guy or is it somebody I else? I think it's something like him. I honestly, I didn't really pay attention too much. <laughs> I think it's probably something like him. Um, I know, I know the kids had it on in the background right? and they were watching it and I didn't, I, I was kind of like half paying attention. So I, I'm, I, I saw bits and pieces of it. So it's- yeah, um, it is what it is. But again, not the best Disney animated movie out there by a long shot, but it also wasn't like insufferable. So, uh, you know, it's it's worth a watch if your kids are into animated movies, etc. Um, nope. A movie that came out, this is a new to me, um, that came out a couple of years ago and I've been perpetually wanting to watch and finally got around to it was 8-Bit Christmas. Did you see this with um, Neil Patrick Harris? Which what what is it? I'm sorry. Eight bit Christmas. No, I did not see this. So it's really good. It's essentially like um, a Christmas story mixed with Wizard, like the Wizard. You remember that movie with like I guess like Fred Savage or yes. Ben Savage, whichever one of them was back in the day where they have to like travel to California to to play to, you know, Nintendo. Like play, yeah. So it's it's almost like if you combine those two movies. Um, okay. It's it's very charming. Um, it tells a fun story. Um, I, I won't say more than that, but I do suggest it. And I think I'll add it into my Christmas deluge of movies that we tend to watch every year. Cause it was fun. Okay. That's cool. Um, the other one that is absolutely going into my slot of <laughs> favorite Christmas movies to watch year in and year out is violent night. Oh, is it, was it good? I want to see <laughs> it, it so bad. So good. And speaking of John Lake Wazamo, he plays the main villain um, in this. And David Harbour, again, is just like so incredible in this. I love him so much. It's I mean, like, it's such an awesome depiction of the character of Santa. And and without trying to I don't think it's like a, too crazy of a spoiler. They sort of rewrite the history of the character a little bit and where he came from. Okay. And essentially he's like a Viking that's been around for like a thousand years and he's 
paying penance for all like the people that he slaughtered like back in his Viking days by being like Santa, Santa. Claus. <laughs> and it's great because then when he gets into the, it's just basically like the movie is like a hostage movie that he's. Well, they say it's like, di- like, like, like Christmas diehard in a way. Like it like is a hundred percent, a hundred percent. He's basically at this like rich family's house and they're being taken hostage by this group. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into too much cause you can get to spoiler territory past that. But the, the what's so great is like the group is all named like their nicknames are like Krampus and Kringle and like, you know, like all these like ridiculous things. And Krampus is my favorite goon by and far, I will say. But um, essentially, he's at the house to like deliver presents, but he's very disenfranchised. He's tired of people not believing anymore. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really know what the holiday is about anymore. He kind of hates that he's still doing it. And like this little girl that still has faith in him is one of the people like at the thing. And like, she gets a hold of him and like through like this convoluted means of like walkie talkies, you'll very, very diehard with the walkie talkies. You'll understand it when you see it. Mm-hmm. But he, he basically like goes back into like his Viking, like brutality and like war mode to like take out all these people that are holding them hostage to save the day. And it is so fun. It's so awesome. Drop what you're doing and go see this movie. Even though we're in January, we're past Three Kings Day and all the good stuff. We're out of that season, but drop what you're doing and go see Violent Night if you haven't seen it. (laughs) Uh, Again, moving down the list here, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Awesome movie. Um, You know, the Shrek movies are, are great. The original Puss in Boots movie, in my mind, was really crummy. I really didn't like it. Mm-hmm. This was really cool. This movie felt like the people over at DreamWorks saw what they did with Into the Spider-Verse over at Sony and were like, we should copy a lot of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they brought that over to Puss in Boots and like in the animation style and the way that battles happen. Uh, just so much of it is really, really good. Um, it, cool. it, it Like forgetting Shrek and everything because it has really not very much to do with that. It stands alone. It's like just like a really decent movie. And again, if you got kids, pop it in. Um, next up on the list, Avatar: The Way of Water. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you, I went and saw a whole bunch of stuff. Um, Avatar. I'll I'll say a little bit more about this when we get over to our our Holly, you know Hollywood sort of news segment. But um, it was another one. Um, it it was good. Uh, as you're sitting there watching it, it's entirely watchable. It's entirely enjoyable. Um, but it's still blue cat people doing things. You know, it's just like I have to say from like a visual effects point of view and things like that, it, it's pure eye candy. You want to see it in an IMAX. You want to see it in 3D. But past that, and and this is kind of from, from my wife's mouth to, to your ears, um, Again, it's another thing where James Cameron kind of just doesn't know how to write like really decent characters. Like they're sort of all kind of caricature and and whatever. This stuff feels deeper than it actually is when it's happening. There's stuff that just makes no sense. You know, like I don't think it's too big a spoiler at this point to say that the villain of this movie 
is the villain of the original movie just reanimated as an avatar that they copied his, they do this like whole like backtrack thing. I said to Angie, I said, this is like George Lucas with the star Wars movies. Like, Oh, I have a plan. I have a plan. But then it's like, well then why is Luke kissing? Like, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. Same thing with this. It's like, they start the movie off by being like, Oh, like this is a flashback right before that giant battle at the end of avatar. All the main soldiers, including the head guy, made a, a copy of their, of their cool. brain. Yeah, and uh, then like they sent that back to Earth and like loaded it into an avatar, so that way they can infiltrate. It's so dumb and unnecessary. Edie Falco comes in as this great new like general, like no nonsense general. Could have been her. Could have been her the whole time, but they had to put the original guy back. It was just like ugh, you know, but. Um, I think one of the other questionable things is um, Sigourney Weaver is playing like a teenaged avatar yeah, I, character. I've heard about this, yeah. Yeah, like essentially her avatar like is still in like stasis. Like after like she failed to be merged with it in the first movie, like they like put it back in like a stasis pod for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And like it became pregnant. So like the, you know, takeaway you guess is that Awa somehow impregnated her with like her own consciousness or something. I I don't know. They don't really explain it. I imagine they'll explain it more as they get into further movies, but she's also basically Neo. Like she can control like wildlife on the planet and things like that. So again, they don't really explain it. They, they really don't, they should get into it more than they do because some of the other characters see her doing this and they don't really be like, Hey, how'd you do that? Um, There's, intelligent talking whales um which is what the whole plot revolves around now like remember that unobtainium from the first movie they got to strip mine the planet for unobtainium yes they don't care about that at all anymore now it's all about sea whales that are as smart if not smarter than people so um yeah i don't know it's it's definitely worth seeing if you enjoyed the first one if you have nothing to do with avatar it's Another one. So again, it's, it's maybe not going to hit your list. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, you know, it, again, I, I knew this was going to be one of those things. Like you have to see it in the theater. You have to see it in IMAX. You have to see it in 3d, but I didn't care enough about the characters in the first movie to care about the second one, to be honest with you. Like it's, yeah. And I'm I'll not say like the Jake and Natiri characters like have, not evolved at all. Like if anything, Natiri is exactly the same character she was in the first avatar. There's no character growth or, or interest there. And Jake, if anything has sort of like completely forgotten and abandoned that he was ever human and fully embraced like the Navi life, which is fine. But his character also sort of has less to do overall. It's really the movie more about their kids um, and I get the impression that the the third movie will probably continue that trend, which is fine. Um, but it it sort of just like feels like it leaves a lot of things on the table. But I don't know. Um, this one I'm just going to mention just in passing. Um, Matilda the musical. Um, Zoe wanted to see this and we watched it and it was quite good. I imagine this is based off of the musical that was on Broadway, but I don't know if it's the same music or new music that they made for it. Um, I didn't see the Broadway one, but um, it was very cute. They did a great job of the little girl that played the main character was awesome. Um, I'll be curious if she goes on to a further acting career because she did very well on it. We watched some of it. And honestly, there were certain parts. Grace got kind of scared at certain parts. And we just. Yeah, it it's off. a little bit of a scary. Yeah. Like um, Kara didn't want to watch it. I think it's more for like Zoe's aged kid, you know, somewhere in like that eight to ten sort of zone. 
the last movie I want to mention, um, because we're getting into Oscar season here, and this one's a contender, is The Fablemans. This is um, Steven Spielberg's- Oh, I want to see this. Was it yes, good? Yes, quasi-self-biographical yeah. movie. <laughs> um, it was very good. It was really, really good. Uh, Ange really wanted to see this. She didn't have to talk me too much into it. I was I was on board to see it. Um, and they did a neat job with it. Um, it. In the beginning portion of the movie, it feels very much like in a vein of like super eight, like sort of just making like fun. Like it's sort of like him with a big budget now being able to remake like the childhood movies that he made as a kid. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fun in that respect. Um, it tells the story of a family that is having problems. And I don't know how much of it is a mirror of what his family had going on as a kid, or if it's just kind of made extra for, you know, dramatic purposes. But um, very enjoyable, very Hollywood. Like if you're into movies and movie making, super fun to watch. Um, so I highly rated. Please go out and give that one a watch too. And, and that's going to do it for, for my ridiculous list. The one little thing I will say at the tail end of this, um, this is a, a TV show, not a movie, but I, I can't get out of here without recommending it, is Last of Us. I am simultaneously... Oh, I playing last of us for the very first time as i'm watching the show i'm trying to keep ahead of the show <laughs> which is a little difficult because i have very little time to to do that but um the game is incredible as everyone has told me for years and the show is awesome so far um, because i have I the really, game i haven't finished it yet either but it, it's a good game it's hard it's actually yeah very hard. i it is no it, it really brings in like the survival aspect of that type of game um i abandoned uh walking dead um when negan came in and i knew what was coming but i i was just like you know what i'm kind of done with this show now yeah I, I i yeah whatever season that was like at the end end of that season i was kind of done basically i just it, it it took me out of it and i could could not care what happens to that show anymore and i'm glad it's ending and the fact that there's like all these different spin-offs like don't care but yeah the the thing about the last of us and i haven't watched it yet it just looks visually breathtaking and and there's if you've if you've watched on like social media like they show like split screens of the game yes, shot yeah. versus the and it's like they literally recreated moments in the game just very Yeah, well very they cool. they have Neil Druckmann who basically like worked I'm going to probably screw this up but either worked on the game or worked on like the story with them with the game, I don't entirely remember. I think he might have written both or something. So they're coming from the original source to a writer on the show with the original source, which is great because it doesn't mean that somebody's adapting it and their version of it. It's really like the original sort of thing carried over. Um, there are scenes and it's very fresh in my head because I'm playing it like days ahead of when I'm watching the show that are like almost word for word verbatim same outfits same locations uh like in the one we watched last night like there's a extremely recognizable location they sort of changed a little bit of what happened and who's happening with them in the scene but it didn't really matter to me too much like it, it was still like really like right on on you know what it needed to be mm -hmm. so it's fun because it's fun because it's a like a, almost a one-to-one -one translation of what is already a really good very highly cinematic game. And so it's it's carrying over well, is I guess what I would say. And I think they used to do a, quite a lot of that with The Walking Dead. I mean, it's it's hard not to compare the two because Walking Dead, 
you know, very often paralleled what was in the comics. And that was some of the strongest reasoning for why it was a good show, you know, as it was. Once they deviated um, from that, it kind of lost its... Yeah, a little bit. So, like, I, I'm curious. I, I know that there's already some fan outcry. Unfortunately, there's kind of stupid fan outcry about casting choices, um, which just seems to be par for the course lately. But um, everybody that's been in it so far has been incredible. Um, I'm really happy to see Anna Torv show up in it because I was a huge fan of Fringe. Oh, yeah. She's and fantastic. she's and so good. And I've been like dying for something good for her to be in since then. Have you seen Mindhunters on Netflix? She's in that too. Oh, I'll have to look that up then. Oh, yeah, you no, love Mindhunters. She is incredible in it. She's has got kind of a small part in it, but she's awesome. And uh, yeah, she's great in that. Uh, but yeah, Fringe, she's amazing in, and I'm glad she's in this show too. Yeah. Um, I will say um, the character of uh, Joel's daughter in the very first episode is played by Tandy Newton's daughter, Tandy Newton from uh, Westworld. Westworld, yep. And she is a clone of her and she is a awesome actress. She did oh, so, oh. so good in that first episode that I was bu- – uh, for anybody who has not played Last of Us or seen the first episode, plug your ear holes – his daughter dies at the end of the first <laughs> spoiler <laughs> spoiler. Yeah. So, um, but it's heart wrenching because you really grow to love her over this in the game. They did it in an interesting way because in the first part of the game, you play as the daughter and then you move over to playing as Joel. Once she dies in this, the story follows her largely around in the first episode. So you're really like connected to her by the time what happens happens and so it's a it's a bummer, but uh, she was really awesome. So I'm looking forward for her for for future stuff too. All right, um, I mentioned that I wanted to briefly uh, jump into a little um, Hollywood news, and the reason why is essentially I just wanted to kind of report on on Avatar and where it's at um, because there's been headline after headline after headline these co- you know past couple of weeks as it's been moving through. And as of yesterday, it became the sixth film in history to surpass $2 billion globally. So it's on par to keep, you know, um, tackling, <laughs> um, you know, all these, uh, you know, records as it goes. And another kind of neat um, record that I saw, and this isn't the first actress to do this. This is the first actor in general to do this. Zoe Saldana is now in four movies that have passed the $2 billion mark. So (laughs) that's pretty cool. You know, like she holds the record now. So um, pretty neat. So good for her. Um, I'm I'm not going to go any more than that because we're already half hour in. So I want to get into our box office 30 segment for January 1993. Okay. Okay, welcome to January 93. This may be the most abysmal January we've covered with a slew of B and even C and maybe even some D movies and completely lacking in anything anyone would consider as A material. But again, more on that in a minute. Our top film list seems to highly resemble our triple feature film reviews from last month. So if you haven't, make sure to check that out. Which is funny. I actually recently was talking to some people and 
we got a lot of positive feedback from last month's episode, by the way. People were saying with they the three? It. Yeah. Oh, I don't know if that sets a good trend or not. <laughs> we'll have to see. I mean, maybe with the new shorter format, we're able to do like two movies or three movies in it. And, you know, we've got a month now. So yeah. all of a sudden we have less excuses. So. We can't be so lazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's good to hear. Well, thank you out there for uh, listener land for getting us that feedback. That's cool. Um, so number one for January is Aladdin with January gross of 53.9 million. In the number two spot is A Few Good Men with 51.4 million. And in the number three spot is The Bodyguard with 28.7 million in earnings. So those were our three last month. They all do a little less uh, money than they did last month, um, which is weird because, um, again, January is terrible. But uh, I don't know. Let's let's take a look down the list here. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're going to jump all the way down from number one and two and three all the way down to number seven, which is a movie called Alive. Um, do you know Alive, Michael? I, I do know Alive. Yes, this is so, the one where they get caught like in like the I don't Andes. Know, it's, it's, yeah, it's not like it's something like yeah. They got, there was a plane. It's based crash. on a true story. Yeah. Um, I don't think I ever saw this movie, but I remembered people talking about it at the time because um, it involves um, a group of people. I don't remember if this is the one where it's like a team of people or this was just a, like a flight of people. They they, they, they were a rugby sort of team. Okay, all right. I was gonna say. Um, where they crashed in the Andes. It's a true story. And they, after a certain amount of time, had to make a choice like, do we all starve to death or do we start eating like our comrades that passed away? Yeah. And um, so it became like a topic of conversation around the time that it came out. I remember um, people chatting about it, but um, that's about as much as I know about it. I didn't, Mm -hmm. uh, to my recollection, see this movie. Interestingly enough, it's under Walt Disney Studios, so I'm assuming this was a Fox release or yeah, something like it. Like 20th Century Back Fox, in the day, it doesn't seem like a Disney uh, type of movie, but yeah. <laughs> um, number eight on the list, Nowhere to Run. Um, I don't know this one. <laughs> I don't know it. I don't think. Uh, yeah, no, I'm reading the plot review, and, and this doesn't do anything for me here. It's a, and it's a Van Damme movie. you think I would know it, but I don't know this one. Um, <laughs> he's an escaped convict. Yeah, lands in a farmland owned by a widow. <laughs> that's so, your t- that's your tagline. Let me just like put this out here now because it's going to repeat. Like essentially, each of the following movies are mostly movies about killers or people being killed mm-hmm. or or whatever. Seems to be like a lot of just like uh, slasher essentially sort of stuff, including number ten, Body of Evidence. A lawyer defends a woman accused of killing her older lover by having sex with him. <laughs> cool. <laughs> it starts Madonna. And oh boy. All right, number 16, I only care about because of Wayne's I'm the world. Leprechaun. Yeah. The leprechaun. I, leprechaun. I remember them talking about this movie when I was a kid. I remember seeing trailers and things for it. I remember seeing a poster for it at the movie store, like the DVD or DVD, VHS rental store. And I was just like, nope. And yeah. uh, yes, number 16 is The Leprechaun. Um, and, and yeah, as soon as I see it, I just flash to that Wayne's world. So it's like, that's like, all right, at least it makes me think about a better movie. <laughs> um, number 22 seems like a movie that's right up your alley, sir. You want to, you want to take that one? Oh, I thought it was going to, uh, Aspen extreme in auto worker and his buddy 
exit Detroit, move to Colorado, and become popular ski instructors. <laughs> That's really drawing me to the theater, man. Holy yeah, this is a bro. Peter Berg movie, interestingly enough. Um, yeah, again, we've talked about it before. Like, 90s movies were filled, and really late 80s movies, with, like, cool dudes at the ski resort. Yeah, know? bro. Yeah, And man. I think kind of famously, um, South Park did an episode sort of poking fun at that. That was incredible. So uh, I'd almost rather be uh, watching that, if you ask me. <laughs> God, that's funny. So the next one up is another movie that's mocked on a show, Lorenzo's Oil. <laughs> it's, I don't, it's, I don't even know. Lorenzo O'Don, a Virginia five-year-old, develops a degenerative nerve disease so rare that nobody is working on a cure. So his parents decide to immerse themselves in research and tackle the problem themselves. This sounds so depressing. <laughs> this sounds like a, yeah. like a, oh boy, I don't know if I could sit through this one. This is, uh, yeah, this sounds very depressing. It seems like a Miramax, but it's actually a Universal, interestingly enough. <laughs> and, it, and it opened to three theaters grossing $80,000. This must have done a like a December limited release and then wide release in January for like Oscar buzz kind of stuff. Cause yeah. it says January 1st. I bet you like they like trickled it out and then they did the official release in January because this is like one of those, I want to go for Oscar kind of movies. Yeah. The, oh, the next one is good though. The next <laughs> I was going to say, so the next one all the way down at number 25, but in fairness with the January 29th release date is Tom Berenger's sniper of all the movies on this list this month. This might be the only one I think I've seen. <laughs> and even at that, I'm a little fuzzy on it. But yes, um, as you would you would expect, um, a veteran U.S. Marine sniper is partnered with a rookie sniper as his spotter to take out a politician and a rebel leader in the jungles of Panama. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember this poster, if nothing else, for sure. Um, I probably couldn't tell you a lot about the plot of the movie, but I'm sure that I saw this on like an afternoon movie if nothing else <laughs> so the next one on the list is number 28 it's a movie called matinee with john goodman uh, a small-time film promoter releases a kitschy horror film during the cuban missile crisis <laughs> i do remember this movie i never saw it but i remember it being advertised a lot um, can i admit to a dumb moment here Sure. When I read it on the list before, earlier, I was skimming through it. I thought it said manatee. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, what is that about a manatee? And then I was like, oh, yeah, matinee. Nope. <laughs> I thought, at first, I thought it was the um, Woody Allen movie, like uh, Manhattan something or other. He does something with matinee in a movie as well, but it's not a Woody Allen film at all. So Interesting. <laughs> this next movie seems familiar but yet i i don't think i can quite place it but i need to read the plot for this one a clerk at the same hotel since 18 30 year old matthew breaks the monotony when his favorite model hexena secretly stays at the hotel he impersonates a caller and goes on a date with her things get deadly he's <laughs> <laughs> got what looks like a fairly comedic poster and cover um so i i'm like having like a hard time 
thinking that this is like a like a like straight up like murder sort of mm-hmm. um movie um this is with air gross and claudia christian um do either of those do anything for you <laughs> not a little not even a little so oh no it is a comedy so it says uh, it says more basic than any instinct more fatal than any attraction more motion than any picture a comedy about sex, violence, and other family values. Hexed. <laughs> oh my goodness! Dirk. So I, I want to take number thirty-one be- for just for this sheer comedic value of what I'm about to say. You go for it. Number thirty-one is Children of the Corn Two: The Final Sacrifice. Yet there was a Children of the Corn Three, which is called Urban Harvest. <laughs> then there's a Children of the Corn Four called fields of terror and i'm sitting there and i'm like how could this be the final sacrifice if there's two more after it <laughs> why would that be why yeah maybe they and don't it, sacrifice anybody in the other ones maybe it is, they, it, uh, it maybe is a mirror max kind of film. around in the corn is it <laughs> it, is, it is a mirror max film it says oh <laughs> wonderful oh my goodness oh is anybody faint yeah is you know nobody of of note in children of the corn too <laughs> yeah Gosh. Oh boy, these movies are bad. Number 32 um, is a film called Night Moves, and that's not N-I-G-H-T, it's K-N-I-G-H-T Moves. During a chess tournament, Grandmaster Peter is suspected of murdering Debbie after sex. What's all this <laughs> sex murder in this month? She helps chess the police and as the murders continue. Now, here's the only thing, because I'm looking at this poster. Does that not look like the dude from Highlander? Is, oh, is it? Oh, please let it be. Please let it be. It is. It's a uh, it name. Uh, <laughs> Christopher Lambert. Christopher Lambert. Yeah, that's funny. But okay. like, it, but the it, reason I'm saying that it looks like his face, like on, like, doesn't the Highlander movie have like a similar poster? Very similar. But fun, <laughs> funny enough, Christopher Lambert has like, he's not even the top build name in, on the list here. He's like number six on the list. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I don't understand and and they credited him his his movie credit known for mortal Kombat. not not highlander mortal Kombat. <laughs> nice um oh, number next- 34 on this list yeah this is another one where i'm sorry but i really got to read it off because we are just like this month is the mirror max of movie month this one is called Nemesis. It says, Alex, a burned out Los Angeles cyborg cop, is forced by Commissioner Farnsworth to find his former cyborg partner and lover, Jared, who's about to deliver sensitive data to cyborg terrorists who wish to wage war against humans. Is he being played? <laughs> like, really? Oh, my God. So is this a knockoff of RoboCop? I guess. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Wow, this is some bad movies, man. Holy cow. Okay, the next one is Man Bites Dog. And this says, a film crew follows a ruthless thief and heartless killer as he goes about his daily routine. But complications set in when the film crew loses their objectivity and begin lending a hand. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's hilarious about this? Uh, it, it's like I can't even wrap my head around that tagline. <laughs> I know I Roxy releasing is the is this distributor. Oh. oh boy, the next one is pretty crazy too. The next one is 
Number 36, Gun Crazy. Doesn't even have a distributor, but yet it's in nine <laughs> theaters. And, oh, is this? No, is this John Cryer in this? No, it can't be. Is it really? No, it's Drew. Oh, my God. It's a Drew Barrymore film. Yeah, and but, it's, but read this one, too. <laughs> a trashy teen murders her sexually abusive stepfather, then helps get her reformed prison pen pal released on good behavior so that she can re-corrupt him? <laughs> what? <laughs> what is going on with these movies this month? This is the nuttiest stuff I've ever seen. Oh, you got to take the last one. I'll give you the last one. Alrighty. All the way down at the very bottom from two moon releasing in exactly two theaters is Motorama. A 10-year-old boy runs away from his abusive parents, steals a Mustang, and pursues a promotional card game sold at gas stations. <laughs> okay. What? <laughs> oh, man. Wow, that what? Is, that's, that's quite what a list. What a list. What a list, sir. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Unrecognizable movies with unrecognizable people in most of them. <laughs> yeah. Wow, this is, this is something. Wow. If, if there was ever a year to release a movie, if you wanted a movie that you wanted to get made... That was the year right there. Yes. January of 93 right there. All right. Well, to talk about a much better film, let's take a look at our review segment for Ascent of a Woman. Alrighty, Scent of a Woman is directed by Martin Brest, who directed other such titles as Beverly Hills Cop, Midnight Run, Meet Joe Black, and Geely, which we'll forgive him for, given some of those other films. The film is written by Bo Goldman and is actually an American remake, which I didn't know this, of an Italian film called Profumo di Donna, which maybe is not terribly surprising to essentially mean Scent of a Woman, which itself is based on the novel Il Buio e Il Miele. Um, in Italian, Darkness and Honey by Giovanni Aprino. Um, the film stars Al Pacino and Chris O'Donnell along the ensemble cast of others, including James Rebhorn and a young Philip Seymour Hoffman. Film comes in at number four in January with a $27.8 million box office take with a December 23rd release. Goes on to make $63 million in the U.S. and Canada and over $71 million internationally, totaling $134 million worldwide. Now, um, <laughs> this is throwing me off because this is where I feel like I'm like, all right, let's see what you can recall about this. But no, we're diving right in on the review. So uh, <laughs> I thought this movie was uh, excellent. I knew going in it was excellent. I really wanted to rewatch this. Um, but having rewatched it after what's been a considerably long time, it was way better than I even remembered it being. Um, the funny part is I was trying to remember – Again, like I was sort of saying at the top of the show, like, you know, I remember with uh, A Few Good Men, it's like, what do you remember? Well, you remember that scene where it's like, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You remember with this one, things like, hoo and, you know, like, and, you know, and, certain, and like the, the courtroom in the end kind of thing, like, yeah. And like the tango dance and things like that. But essentially, this movie is just two and a half hours. And I was also, because, you know, you and I talked about it a little bit last time, and I meant to include. Um, the information here, I do have it um, off over on the side here. Let me pull it over. Um, that, you know, we talked about that this movie was a Oscar winner. 
and um, it won quite a few awards. So actually, let me just run through a couple of those really quickly. Um, so at the Academy Awards, uh, Al Pacino won for Best Actor in a Leading Role, which you and I were sort of saying like might be you know slightly controversial given some of the other um, people he was up against. It was and also this was nominated. His, but this was his, his first win as that role, as Correct. Best Actor. Yep. Um, it was nominated as well for Best Picture for Martin Brest, Best Director Martin Brest, Best Writing Screenplay based on material previously produced or published, Bo Goldman. It was also nominated for a ton of other um, – uh, awards from various groups. It also won um, Golden Globe that year for Best Motion Picture Drama, Best Performance by an Actor for Al Pacino, Best Screenplay, Bo Goldman. Um, so again, when you're seeing these like uh, awards for Al Pacino, when you rewatch this movie, you're like, oh, I understand why. It's two and a half hours of him just with like either one-liners or like just, um, you know, his descriptions of the world and thoughts and like, it's it's just all of it awesome. It's just so fun to listen to and to watch through. Um, I he, think he goes full Pacino in this whole movie. Like it's full throttle Pacino the whole film. A hundred percent. Yeah. No. And it like it's just like he's such a fun character. Um, and I saw something where he was talking a little bit about how he played blind in this film. Um, and essentially like he sort of was saying like he would like defocus his eyes and kind of like look like off to the side of like, like, you know, like if you kind of like unfocus your eyes and sort of like look to your left or right, you kind of can't see like what's in the middle of your vision anymore. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting thing, but he actually ended up like tripping in like a bush and hurting himself (laughs) during the production of the movie from doing that, which is also kind of funny. Um, but to kind of give like a quick, um, plot summary, and I'm, I'm kind of borrowing this from the internet a little bit. Um, Our main character is Charlie Sims. He's from Oregon. He attends the Baird School. And what sort of blew me away in the very beginning, beginning, beginning of this movie is as they were doing sort of the credits and and intro, they had all these shots of the school. Only that wasn't Baird School. It felt like Harvard. That was Princeton University. That was right here in town with me. (laughs) Was it really? (laughs) Yes. I was like, hey, wait a minute. Like I was like recognizing all these popular spots around the campus. But that's the first and last time you see Princeton because then all the rest of the school scenes that you see is like I, I looked it up and I unfortunately don't remember what it's called now. I think it's in Canada, a all girls prep school they ended up using for this all boys prep school for the movie. <laughs> I guess it's just because it had that like that kind of like old, you know, um, Castellan sort of look like Princeton does. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was interesting and that they just didn't use more of Princeton, like that they went off and used this other campus and you don't really see any of those opening shots ever used again because all those famous locations aren't at this other location. So I don't know. I thought that was interesting, but I digress. Um, Essentially, uh, it's one of these deals where like he's at this school. I don't know if he's there on scholarship or what, but all the other boys at the school are like super well to do. And he really is. And he kind of has to scrimp and save you know, when they go out, he kind of can't go out with them sort of thing. Um, and he basically is looking for a quick job that he can do towards the end of his semester to make a little money. So that way um, he's going to stay over Thanksgiving in town, whereas all his friends are like going out like to um, uh, Sugarbush, um, which is a, uh, a ski, ski resort like in resort. Vermont. Yeah, which I've actually been to. Um I said that to Ant. I was like, oh, I actually really like Sugarbush. I went like once or twice. Um, but 
essentially he can't afford to go with them. So they're, you know, making fun of him for that and everything. So he's kind of like the odd man out. And he finds on the school's bulletin board a job listing for um, essentially like house sitting like an elderly gentleman is yeah. sort of like the way that the, the thing calls. Um, little does he know <laughs> that uh, when he gets there that he's actually going to be um, essentially hanging out with um, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Frank, <laughs> who is uh, forgetting his last name at the moment. Slade. Um, Slade, thank you. Retired uh, Slade. Retired from... Uh, <laughs> do you know Teen Titans Go? Have you watched any yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, they, they're always referring to... I don't know why they can't just say Deathstroke, but they call him Slade in those, and I love that. Um, but uh, Frank is a wisecracking, retired, blind um, ex-lieutenant colonel from the, the army. Extremely and he intense. he lives... Yes, super intense. He lives with, I think it's his, his niece. niece. It's his niece, yes. Yeah, he, I guess he doesn't have any kids, so that's why there's the family connection there. Um, he lives in like a little, like, you know, like a little backyard hut behind their main house. Um, but they're trying to get out of town. Um, interestingly enough, not to the same Thanksgiving dinner that they ultimately end up later in the movie. You notice that like they sort of mention like, oh, like, you know, let's go bother your your brother instead of like your uh, sister for a while or whatever. Um, so I don't know where they were going. I guess they just weren't meeting up the rest of the family there, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Um, but I digress. Um, anyway, essentially, the movie follows the misadventures of, um, you know, he thought he'd have to just kind of sit around the house with the guy. But, uh, you know, Frank has much different ideas. He wants uh, to head to New York. Essentially. Frank kidnaps a 17-year-old boy <laughs> yeah, and takes him to New York. <laughs> yeah, and, and Frank is at this point tired of the life that he's been living. He's tired of being blind and just living in this little house. So he wants to have like one last hurrah um, in New York, which he you know kind of considers to be like his favorite city. He wants to go see his brother one more time. And then he wants to put a gun in his mouth and end everything. So um, I have a thought about that, first of all. Yes. So... I understand why he didn't like he could have essentially killed himself at any time he wanted to. But uh, essentially, I don't think he wanted to do it in the niece's house where his, you know, grand niece and nephew live and is, you know, and like damage them. So he'd rather go somewhere else, some place innocuous where he'd be yeah. alone and, and not have to have his family, the people that actually care about him find him dead in their home kind of yeah thing. i think it's that and i think it's the bucket list you know like he has this like set of ideas of what he wants to get done before he ends everything and right. so um charlie unwittingly is sort of um drawn into this by the nature of being his companion and escort um and you just get like their zany adventures you know and like uh you know frank is is essentially like I'm going to teach you like what life is about, like over like, you know, the next like week here. Um, and so it's a lot of like little lessons, a lot of like, you know, like, um, you know, Charlie plays things very safe. You know, he's kind of like a quiet kid. So, you know, they steal a Ferrari, not steal. They, you know, they, um, they go on a test drive. They, with they a check it out, and, let's say. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, and, you know, like go like for a joyride and, um, you know, like, Frank hires like a prostitute and like, you know, like it's all these sort of things. And, um, we are meant to be Charlie. We're sort of supposed to experience Frank 
through Charlie's eyes, yeah. you know, like as a viewer and sort of like the crazy antics that he gets up to. And we get like little insights into, you know, his, ha- his past and um, his relationships with certain people, like particularly his brother and like his family and, um, you know, there's like a lot of, you know, like no love lost between, between them and him, you know, certainly, um, that, that may and, be the most intense, second most intense scene of the whole movie, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that he does want to kill himself. And I think ultimately it's why Charlie's able to quasi easily talk him out of it in the end is that he's a guy that's actually really full of life still, um, you know, despite his condition, he's somebody that like doesn't really let that, you know, hold him back, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way, you know, he sort of, you know, has to rely on Charlie for a lot of things throughout the thing, but you know, like the tango scene, um, and, and certainly the driving scene and things like that sort of lend an air to the fact that like he's living on the edge and he's not, he doesn't really care if he lives or dies at this point, but he's also somebody that's like charming and interesting when he wants to be and, and very full of life when he wants to be, you know? What I also found surprising was I thought the girl from the tango scene had a bigger role than, than what she did. She's literally in that one scene and that's it. And we never see her again. And And interestingly enough, I I have a little fun fact about her, which is that um, years later um, asked about the role um, because I I guess she's gone on to do other things. She's a British actress. Yeah. She was on burn notice. She was in a ton of different movies and shows and uh, all over the place. (laughs) She um, claimed that, in the production of the movie that um, her and Al Pacino were meant to attend tango lesson classes and that she repeatedly kept showing up, but Al Pacino didn't, but she's like, what do you do? He's Al Pacino. You can't really tell him what to do. Um, But that she's like, I feel like I still have a couple of like broke toes from, (laughs) from the dance from him sort of stepping on her. But I do have to say that aside, if that's the case, Apparently, A, Al Pacino knows how to tango at least well enough to, to pass in those scenes. Or B, that's one hell of an editor. <laughs> uh, yes. And I was about to say either B, that, or C, um, you know, just like they just managed to get it done on the the day of in, an, in a really good way because it looked pretty flawless um, in execution. So um, I thought that was very funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, I mean, there's a lot about this movie that there's a lot of moments and that is a very charming, you know, special kind of moment. It's, it's a unique sort of window into who Frank is. And I think it's also sort of the moment where Charlie really connects with him in a way. Like he's like, like this guy who's got this disability for, for, you know, and they explain what happens, you know, at the, at the Thanksgiving dinner scene. But- Although I'm a little like, shocked and or surprised by that's what had happened essentially he was being himself with like you know standing on the edge of a knife point for for sort of danger and he was juggling grenades and he pulled the pin on one of them and it got away from him um and they almost lead you to believe without saying it that somebody else got Got killed killed yeah by that action and that's you know what ended up with him discharged I don't 100% think that's the case because I feel like if he if somebody did die then he would essentially be like a military prison instead of right. like a court, court you know, marshal discharged. and you know all that But shit. I think it's probably somebody came close or got injured and he they basically like he became blinded. Yeah. Now the only way I feel like somebody flashbang. became blinded 
Well, that's what I was about to say is either like not grenades, something like that that went off right in his face, I would think. And again, I'm no munitions expert. I say this all the time. Or like grenade shrap- shrapnel went into his eyes. But you see his eyes. It's not like he's like. So he's got yeah, a he small does. scar on the side of his face that I don't know if Al Pacino has naturally or if they yeah. added that. Um, I, I have to assume it was a flashbang grenade that just went off. Like, I, that's my guess. I mean, it's a dumb thing to, to like really think too much about. But I just I thought it was interesting when they said that. I was like, I, what is the physics of that happening? Because you feel like somebody who like, let's say, got like shrapnel or something hit them in the eyes wouldn't like have their eyes uncovered as much as as he does. You know, he's not like the blind man walking around with dark glasses on you know like, what i mean like sort of thing. kind of thing you know, exactly like, yeah or like an eye patch exactly um so i don't know i thought that was interesting um i forget where we were going before i put us on that tangent <laughs> so you know we go on like i said a lot of these misadventures like the the ferrari the dancing you know they they befriend their limo driver who takes them all over the place who connects frank with an escort yeah like a, a high-end escort in a apartment building somewhere in like the upper east side or upper west side somewhere and you know they they tour through brooklyn you know again this is one of those things where like they take the ferrari out of fifth avenue and the next moment we, we're in dumbo and i'm like there's no I, way they're going to that fast. i do have to say it is really funny that i was thinking to myself because you and i know that area very intimately where they are um, down in dumbo and at least these days, that's a very crowded area. And very I was like, they didn't and very cobblestone like yeah. you wouldn't bring a Ferrari down that road. <laughs> so I, unless it was terribly different in the nineties. Yeah. That was like a very, very closed set. Yeah. Um, the other thing that uh, we are missing out on here, another very important plot point is, is kind of one of the instigating incidents of this film is that Charlie um, inadvertently becomes witness to some of his, um, Classmates, say, I guess. Yeah, classmates is a better way to put it. I was going to say cohorts. Um, essentially pulling a prank on the headmaster of the school who has been given, um, I a think jaguar. something. Yeah, Jaguar. I was going to say something like that, um, you know, by the school board. And they by the, kind by, of by the trustees, by the trustees. Trustees, right. Well, yeah, trustees of the board, whatever. Um, but they, they take, um, you know, they kind of have a problem with them having done that. So they want to kind of prank him. So they get all the students out. And the night before, they set up like over like his parking space. There's like a like a street light. And they set up this like elaborate like balloon that like so when they set I it off. I want to talk about like this for a second, right? Blow up. So, yes. <laughs> so, so they set up this balloon essentially with some sort of like hose and inflation mechanism, right? But they're up in a building where like there's an intercom system yeah you're almost meant to believe that it's like his office or something like that and and i'm sitting there and i'm like there's no way in 92 93 or whatever when this was filmed probably 92 they had some sort of remote mechanism that didn't have a wire like i mean maybe yeah i don't know like without running like a hundred foot wire i guess it's the same thing as the grenade going off it's sort of like just like a dumb plot point that like anyone else besides you and me wouldn't spend time to really think about. Um, but, but it is true. It, what you're saying did flash through my mind for at least a moment, at least shorter than the grenade question. But um, what I was curious about was what the substance was that was in that balloon. And I it was paint. A, I th- that's my guess too, is that it was paint, but B how this guy who is like 
you know, the headmaster at this school doesn't look up at a balloon, which to even you and I, the viewer from even far away can see is filled with some sort of liquid substance. Right. (laughs) And he's going to climb up on the car and pop it rather than just like back the car away and like, you know, like throw a rock at it or, or something, you know, like he climbs on the car to pop this balloon, like clearly not seeing that there's very visibly something in the bottom of this balloon that's going to fall out, you know, sort of thing. But anyway, he's dumb enough to fall for it. And he, his car gets covered in this thing. Now, there's a, I assume, teacher or somebody that worked at the library that was leaving late the night before where Charlie works at the library. And he meets up with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. And they're sort of watching them assemble this thing on a ladder. Which I want to and point she, this out, right? So this was the first movie I ever saw saw Philip Seymour, Seymour Hoffman, who's actually credited as Philip S. Hoffman in the movie. Yes, which um, was interesting. I noted that too. Um because he's such a jerk in this movie, I hated him as an actor for a long, long time until I saw him in like later stuff as he became as an older actor. And I'm like, I just can't watch anything with this guy. I just don't like him. <laughs> he plays like a like a, a really, really good bad guy. I think yeah. my all time favorite, and I can't remember the character's name, was the character he played in Mission Impossible, um, where like he gets like a hold of like Tom Cruise or whatever, and mm-hmm. he's like. It's like, do you have a wife? Do you have a child? I'm going to find them. I'm going to hurt them. You know, like, 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 he's just like, he's so diabolical in that role. You're like, oh my God. Like he felt like, like a terror, yes. you know? And it's like, you, you have so many of these characters in those like Mission Impossible and James Bond type of movies that feel cartoonish. He felt really evil and it's because of his delivery. It was yeah. so cold. It was so just like, you know, like calculated this is what's and- going to happen, you know, sort of thing. I loved him in that. Um, but anyway, yes, he was he was a good little bad guy in this too, playing like the rich snobbish kid. And I also so, I need to point out, you know, so this is a little bit of a tangent, but this is something that we notice a lot in these kind of films, like school ties and everything like that. All of these actors are meant to be like 14 to 16 years old. There's nobody under 18 in this film. <laughs> yeah, Every, no, everybody not is over 18. But... I will say I can visually see where Joel Schumacher saw Chris O'Donnell and said, this kid could be Robin. And I'm going to point this out because he could have been Robin at this point in his age. When he becomes Robin in Batman forever, he feels too old. So while we're talking about Charlie and casting, because um, essentially there's a lot of people. Oh, did you see this list of people that were up for this role? There's a, quite a few people, and it includes people that you wouldn't guess because some of them weren't names yet. Um, so, for example, um, Matt Damon, Matt Damon. Ben Affleck, <laughs> yeah, Matt Damon, um, Ben Affleck, uh, Brandon Fraser, right off his role in Encino Man. Um, Randall Batkinoff, Battenkoff. I don't, I don't necessarily know who he is, um, but Anthony Rapp and the one that really surprised me, Chris Rock. Yeah, because I kind of didn't realize he was like into the acting scene or anything like that at this point in time. Um, and, and but on, I honestly, saw a really- I, I, I could see why they would choose or, or even consider him because literally every boy at this school is white. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, I think that's the case. But I'll tell you. The funny part is, is that I I caught some story and I don't remember where I saw this or heard this in the past, like we can change or whatever it was. But um, essentially, like, I guess like Matt Damon, Chris O'Donnell, Ben Affleck were friends. 
and they were all kind of going after this thing. And, and like, I guess like, I think it was Matt Damon sort of said to uh, Chris O'Donnell, like, Hey man, you got the script for that thing. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, can I see that? And he like, wouldn't let him have it. He wouldn't let him see it. Cause he like <laughs> wanted the part so bad. And um, essentially something else I saw said that the rest of them thought their auditions went poorly mm-hmm. and chris o'donnell's actually thought his went really well and ultimately so surprise surprise he's the one that got the role um you know chris o'donnell is what he is i feel like i feel like this is like the height of his career for me this is like, probably really, his, his biggest role other than the batman stuff and you know i mean but, he's done other things but like i just don't feel like any of it's really all that good <laughs> and even in this movie he's sort of just mostly along for the ride um, you know, he does well in some of the scenes that he does need to do well in, um, like including again, like ultimately, I, you know, we should get back, I guess, on on the plot line. The film comes to a head when Al Pacino is going to kill himself and he's told Charlie he's going to do this. But then from, essentially from, from jump, basically. And, you know, he, he knows from the beginning he's going to kill himself, but like he, he has his dress but like He does tell him fairly soon into it, surprisingly. So for what I thought I remembered. But he sort of like sends Charlie like, oh, why don't you go and get like such and such from this store? Yeah, cigars and, and like it's the way downtown sort of, or something like yeah, that. Like he yeah, he sort of like realizes like, oh, wait, like this is the moment. Um, so he goes back and like they sort of like get to a shouting match and they end up like wrestling over the gun a bit. You know, Frank's threatening to shoot him. Um, and, you know, it kind of finally comes to a head and, and he's able to talk him out of it. And um you know, things are better, you know, whatever. Yeah. But um, I, I think then, as you say, the, the movie ultimately then ends up, and I think I, I forgot to finish saying this. For, so for anybody who somehow hasn't seen this movie, uh, the the female teacher librarian, whatever, kind of oversees something happening with the principal's car and they put two and two together. And essentially the whole time over Thanksgiving break, um, he's really worried because he knows that when he gets back, he's going to have this disciplinary hearing with him and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. And he's trying to get a hold of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. And he's all like, no worries. We're not telling our parents about this thing. We're rock solid. We're not saying nothing. And it's going to be fine. And slowly you start to get the impression that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is in fact going to turn over because all of a sudden now his father's involved in it, even though they said we weren't going to involve the parents. And, you know, you know, he's talking with Al Pacino back and forth the whole movie about what he should do about this thing. And Al Pacino sort of keeps like saying to him, like, I'd flip on him, you know, like, you know, he sort of has this um, anecdote where he's sort of like, you know, when it gets to like, it's not a flight or fight exactly that he puts it, but he sort of says, like, you can duck your head and escape. And he's like, duck your head and escape is like the easy way to do it. That's what I would do. You know, essentially. So um, he's trying to talk him the whole movie into just like, you know, flipping on the kid. But, um, you know, essentially, uh, once they get to the hearing at the end of the movie and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character more or less flips on the friends, he sort of gives their names. But he's kind of like, I couldn't exactly say I didn't have my contact Mm -hmm. lenses, you know, this whole sort of thing. Um, But Al Pacino shows up for Charlie at the last minute and comes and sits with him. Um, and you know, like the headmaster sort of has it out for Charlie because, you know, essentially what Frank said to him that, you know, like he's told Charlie, like, if you flip on them, I'll get you a free ride to Harvard. 
Um, and uh, in the meantime, like Frank is like, those kids don't need that. Like their fathers are going to get them into Harvard. Right. You need that. Take, you know, take the, the, take the deal bait and, and go for it. Um, but then when push comes to shove, Charlie essentially says, I didn't see anything. I don't know who it was. He, he refuses to rat on the guys, even though he really has no reason to protect them. You know what yeah. I mean? Like essentially just out of like, you know, like a sense of honor that he has. And the headmaster takes this to like, basically be like, all right, well, I can't punish Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. He doesn't really say why, except I guess like the fact that he kind of gave them the names Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, I'm going to, you know, kick you out of the school, basically. He, 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 no, he can't punish him because his dad's probably a big donor. Kind of well, thing. Th- that obviously, yes. But like he, he literally says, like, I can't punish young da 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 da. And he wouldn't be admitting that there. So I think he's kind of like, you know, going like, all right, you kind of gave me names. So I'll let you, you know, slide on this. And we know as the viewers that it's because his father is there and he's going to, you know, raise a, a hell with him if he if he doesn't do that. But, um, you know, Al Pacino goes into this very similar um, kind of speech, you know, in a, in a vein to like a few good men that sort of, um, you know, the whole school is like on their feet cheering at the end and all this sort of thing. And he refers it to the disciplinary committee and the disciplinary committee does the right thing and gives Charlie a pass on the grounds that like Charlie, you know, like they're, they're sort of saying the whole time that like a bared man has honor and a bared man has courage and all this. And he's like, Charlie's the only one here, including the headmaster that's showing any kind of courage or integrity um, at this moment. So he ends up getting the pass. And and I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's character ends up getting more in trouble um, where they're going to look into it more. Yeah. Sort of like a, you know, dishonorably, uh, you know, noticed or something like that or so, so they yeah use, they use a particular verbiage they, yeah they sort of like say like essentially like like charlie is is free from any more repercussions or investigations in this but they're going to be looking more into into him essentially and, so and you and kind of get the impression that three boys that actually well. did, did the deed they they do like say something about them like they're on um uh probation or something like that you know kind of yeah thing. so i mean that's the movie in a nutshell um so what is what really makes the movie. I mean, it has that kind of end of the compelling story, but what really makes it is these interpersonal moments between the two of them and between characters they interact with, like the girl that he does the tango with, um, who has her own sort of thing where you can kind of tell that like, she's got like an absentee boyfriend or or fiance or whatever he is. And um, again, I think what really makes this movie work and, you know, Al Pacino sort of is, as you said, Al Pacino in in many different movies, he's sort of you know the same exact type of guy. But in this movie, I think what really makes this character sing is that he is infinitely charming. Everything about him when he wants to be is like just sort of this like whisk you off your feet and kind of charm you sort of mm-hmm. um, character. And he is particularly that way with the ladies. And I bring that up because I know way back at the beginning of this, you had some thoughts about how this movie holds up over the 30 year prism. So, so why so, don't you dive in on that? <laughs> so, yeah, um, this movie essentially, um, goes down a very, very, uh, unique vocabulary path in the way that they <laughs> talk about women Hoo-ha. and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's very vulgar and, um, essentially very offensive in today's lens. Um, 
And I, I, I get the impression that the quote unquote scent of a woman is uh, her private area. Jesus. Um, I don't know if it's, I mean, maybe, you know, so, like there's so, a lot of stuff in this movie that points out like hair smell, perfume smell. You're taking it to another spot well, there. So, I, I so, don't know so, if I see that as much, but, so, but. I'll, t- I'll tell you why I say that. And, and because Christ. <laughs> this podcast is canceled folks. <laughs> um, because he talks about in the end and I just watched it. Like, you know, I finished it an hour or so ago. Um, he talks about like laying, you know, between their leg or like having their legs wrapped around you and stuff like that. And I'm like, is he talking about her, her private areas? I was like, what, no. what's, what's happening here? Um, it, made, it made me very uncomfortable. Um, and in a lot of cases, like there's a lot of stuff that he says and how he talks to women and talks about women that are wildly offensive and would never fly today. Never in a million years fly today. Um, it is true. And what's interesting is, and again, it's a little bit of a culture change that we've had since since this time. What I think is kind of interesting because he's sort of like any time a woman comes by, whether it's, again, the young girl at, at the tango place um, or like the flight attendant on the airplane, like he sort of has no qualms about just being like, hey, you know, like and going yeah. into his whole shtick. But Every single one of them, to my recollection, seems to kind of go for it. Yeah, they, which they again, all kind of get you know, enamored by him in a way. And um, but this is where I was going to go back to that again. Like he's offensive, but he's equal parts offensive and like sort of charm. like a charming type of guy. And so you don't get a read on those scenes as that he's like really genuinely kind of being gross or taking advantage of people. You know, like even with again, like so, like let's let's bring up the girl with the tango to that point. You know, for all we know, she's somebody around Charlie's age. Um, you know, because he's kind of like he's you can kind of see that he's sort of like trying he to even, like be like, he hey, Charlie likes out. you. You know, like Charlie, she likes you. You know, it's like uh, probably twenty two. He thinks or something. Yeah, he, he yeah, but again, like uh, close enough in age to to somebody like Charlie because he's he sort of seems like he's trying to fix her up with him until the guy ends up showing up. Um, but that's not going to also stop him from wanting to do the tango. But that said, like, he's not necessarily like somebody that's taking advantage of her either. You know what I mean? No, so in a way, so. it, it rides a line that in some of these other movies that we've seen, this type of male behavior kind of borders that line of more creepy. Yeah. He kind of seems to retain like sort of like that debonair, um, sort of like you know slick guy that you know whether it's true to real life or not that like women are going to be attracted to in this setting you know what i mean mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean it, it it is interesting then that like he's like i need to find myself a prostitute then because he seems like somebody who could head over to the bar and find somebody in short order to to connect with you know but i will point out so at the at the end of the movie after the hearing is complete uh, they meet one of like uh, Charlie's teachers and yes. it was like Miss So-and-so. And, for, and the one thing that he does throughout the whole film is he can smell their perfume and know yeah. exactly what perfume they're wearing. And uh, Frank also has this like unique ability to kind of describe how the woman appears, like hair, eyes, all, and even though he's blind and he can tell. So Charlie introduces him to this teacher who 
is again enamored with you know this man who's you know a war veteran and you know she's a poli sci or sociology yeah well like that's that's kind of the hook is you know he sort of says something to charlie that's either like he wishes he had it or like it's something that charlie should look to do which is essentially like find yourself like a woman that like has like you know like this interest in you and like this you know he's sort of like is and then we get to like led to believe like this is kind of a good match for him because right. it's somebody that I think she teaches like political science. Yeah. Uh, and, and you and, know, would be interested in like his experiences, you know? And this is the first woman that he doesn't really go vulgar on. Like he, yeah. he's, he's more like just, he's charming, but he's not like, he's not know. going over the top. Correct. It's, yeah. it's almost like he's learned a little bit of a lesson in himself too, that he, he sort of, is now not like living on that edge anymore or that he's going to start like reining in his behavior a little bit to, to, you know, kind of, he, he, you know, he sort of talks about that. He's ruined all his personal relationships. People only just stand him, you know, like even like the relationship he has with his own brother, his his niece's children, they're sort of scared of him and all this. So the movie ends on this nice moment where he gets dropped off and he's like, you know, playing with the children in the yard and acting like a good grandfatherly sort of character, you know? Um, so you, you get led to believe that he's had a little bit of a character growth by the end and sort of realizes he needs to, like, maybe he sees something in Charlie that he's like, you know what, maybe I need to be a little more like that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. They, they um, do, they do kind of rub off on each other a little bit in a way, uh, maybe Charlie a little bit less so other than the fact of like, you know, maybe not being so afraid and, and, um, and you know, he, it's it's interesting because you know we learn glimpses of like charlie's home life and like how his his father i guess left but his his stepfather is kind of a jerk and he doesn't like him um so this frank's character kind of becomes like a surrogate father figure in a way and um and they they connect in a lot of ways because they're both kind of alone they don't really have anybody um and so i do like that a lot it's very compelling storytelling and i do think that you're right that frank kind of learns a bit from charlie and becomes somewhat better in a, in a way like he, he sees some of the error in his ways you know yeah no I, I completely agree so i mean that's by and large the movie um i think we both i'm probably not speaking out of turn here very much so enjoyed it um you can oh, definitely no, see totally. what, i, I totally know the yeah. award that he won um, I did have a couple last little fun facts that I thought would be fun to end on here um, because I think one of the things that everybody remembers out of this movie, and I've done them a couple times already, is that hoo <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and uh, I saw a neat thing that was essentially describing where he had got that from. So um, essentially uh, Pacino uh, was working with a actual lieutenant colonel um, from the army and he'd teach him like how to like load and unload the gun mm-hmm. and like different you know things about that. And uh, essentially, this guy in real life, whenever he would do something correctly, the guy would go hua, you know, sort of thing, which we've heard from like Marines and people like that over time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he picked it up and like put it into his own you know special context. But you know, he's he credits this guy as where that came from. That he lifted that and started you know essentially that wasn't part of the script for the movie. He just started adding that in That's as a cool. character sort of point um, from that, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, cool. 
I mentioned earlier um, that he sort of did this thing where he was unfocusing his eyes. They were originally actually going to give him um, like contacts. contacts that would actually blur his vision for him, but he ended up not wanting to use them after they were created um, because they were concerned that his eyes would actually be injured from from you know like sort of the same thing you always hear like don't use somebody else's glasses because the prescription will mess with you. Yeah. Essentially, same sort of thing. So they didn't want to do that. Um, but he did end up still hurting himself, as I mentioned, by falling into a bush. Well, there's, there's um, a scene in the city where eyes, uh, there, there's a fall, there's a scene in the city where he's kind of like out of it a little bit after the Ferrari scene, and he falls into a trash can, then falls into a bush, and Chris O'Donnell like runs to like pick him up and help him up and everything, and you could see he was like, you know, a little disoriented, and and it, it felt more than acting. I feel like. Um, one thing I want to point out, and I find this very funny, this is just a, a thing that I noticed, and this is not about the movie in particular, but just movies in general. Sure. Th- there was a window of time in this era where the, you know, protagonist, if you will, and like the guy that has to go on the journey is generally named Charlie. Like we have, <laughs> we have Charlie Conroy from Mighty Ducks. We have Charlie Sims in this. There's a few other Charlies that pop up over time, which I find that kind of interesting. Charlie Sheen, Ben Vereen, shrink to the size of a lima bean. Yes, <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I think it's, this is an everyman name. You know what I mean? I think um, people that are writing how many Charlies do you know? Name yeah. name five. I have a, I have a cousin named Charlie. <laughs> I have one Charlie that I know. So yeah. Um, <laughs> The last thing I wanted to point out, because I, I thought this was kind of funny, because one thing that surprised me when I started watching this movie was the length of it. Um, I put it on and I went, wow, this is over two and a half hours long. Um, and it doesn't feel like it while you're watching it because it's it's so compelling. But um, what's interesting is that critics at the time were sort of you know complaining about the length of it. Um, and the first cut um, by the director went something like 160 minutes long. Um, and they actually wanted it to be even longer, but universal, the, the, you know, release, um, uh, group for this wanted yeah. it to be shorter as they usually fight for it. Interestingly enough, they won their point when test audiences of all groups actually responded better to the longer version, which <laughs> I feel like is an interesting fact. Cause I feel like, you know, you talk to most people and they're like, Oh, that movie's too long. I don't want to sit down and watch too long a movie. And yet with this one, Again, they must have found it as compelling as we did that the longer uh, cut actually won out. So I thought that was kind of a fun fact to end this on for us. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. It's good to know. Interesting. I like it. Yeah. Um, so that's going to do it for us uh, this month. Um, let's take a look at what we have for next month. Oh, boy. Which I didn't get up ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Run up again. So, all right. <laughs> so I was about to say that we should give the voters a choice on this again, but I, I'm actually going to probably find it really hard to do that. But I'll throw it out there. Maybe this is another month where we do a couple because my friend at number one on this list for February 1993 is one of my all time favorite movies and certainly among my top for Bill Murray Groundhog Day. <laughs> we got three Movies that I love. Okay, so we got Groundhog Day, and we've got at number four, L- National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon One. I love yep. that movie. <laughs> and number five, yes, <laughs> Homeward Bound: The Incredible Journey 
for which I am too pooped to poop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Here's the thing. I'm completely on board to rewatch Groundhog Day. I could rewatch Loaded Weapon. I don't know if I want to rewatch Homeward Bound yet again, because funny enough, I think I showed the kids that in a previous year. And they were. But I'm also willing to discuss that movie at 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 further length, should we like to, in the uh, in the countdown section. So I don't know. Do we put this one up for a vote again, or do we just go with um, <laughs> a couple of these again? So let I, I would say we do this. I would love to do Groundhog Day and Loaded Weapon One, and talk about those two movies, and then All we, right, could you little, we could do a little sidebar about Homeward Bound. Um, that's a deal. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm good with that because the thing about Groundhog Day is it's so relevant even to today. And you know, I love the spoof movies of the of the oh, hundred percent. You know, so when we get to Hot Shots, I don't care where it is on the list. We're doing Hot oh, Hot Shots, Shots Bardu. Yes, Bardu. Bardu. It's coming up soon. It's not far. Oh my goodness! Wow, even March has a, has a couple of really good movies. Oh I was goodness. so into those spoof type movies as a kid. Like I was too. Anything yeah. with Leslie Nielsen, you know, like Spy Hard, even like ones like that that weren't as like speaking of Leslie good. Nielsen. Uh, uh, oh no, that's Cop and a Half. I was thinking a uh, National um, Naked Gun two and a half, but no, this is Cop and a Half. Which is, oh man, I'm just looking ahead to like March, April. Getting out we of got the, a year coming up. Yeah. yeah. Getting out of January. We got some really good stuff. Oh, January man. was a dinger, but we got some good months ahead here. <laughs> May, May is another one. Holy moly. Hot Shots Part Two is number six in May. Are you serious? Six. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, we got a lot coming up. But yeah, I would say we do a two for one and we do Groundhog Day and Loaded Weapon One for February. If you're good. You with got that. it. All right, right, friends, we will see you in another month. In the meantime, Michael, tell them how to get a hold of us. I got to find our notes. Yes. Okay. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can go a lot of different places. So if you want to chat with us about anything, movies, you know, history of movies, nerdiness, recommendations, go to our social medias. It's box office three zero at Facebook and Twitter and box office T H I R T Y on Instagram. You can go to our website as well, which is box office 30.com, you know, and we have a lot of back episodes and cool stuff to check out and so on and so forth. Um, as always, we want to thank the Retro Network, and in particular, Jason and Mickey, for hosting our show and allowing us the flexibility to change our platform doing once a month now and they were totally cool with it they just like that we have content that's you know family friendly most of the time and you know we have a great great time with them and they're really most great of the dudes. time maybe not this episode maybe not this episode <laughs> um i do have a packet of stickers they sent us about our show that you know we got some cool stuff and cool merch oh yeah we were gonna figure out how to get those out to people and we forgot to do that i guess yeah, we should we figure, figure that out we gotta figure that one out <laughs> yeah we'll figure that out for february um you can also check us out at our T Public store where you can get merchandise with Box Office 30 logos on it, sweatshirts, mugs, whatever. If you're looking for a Valentine's Day gift, go for it. Also, um, through my other podcast, Wizards the Podcast Guide to Comics, we have partnered with Manscaped and they just sent me a really cool beard trimming set and really cool stuff. If you're looking for a gift for your 
your loved one, you can go use the Manscaped promo code, which is Wizards20, and you get 20% off and free worldwide shipping. So you can get some cool stuff from Manscaped, you know, and it supports the show and it supports us. And we're super happy to have you guys around. And again, don't forget to check us out on all of our socials and, and our website, boxoffice30.com. Listen, thanks so much for listening and hoo See you next time, friends. hoo <laughs> This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.